Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsor Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. This was so much fun. We had Matt Knudsen on, who is just incredible. I mean, he's done Conan, Late Late Show. He's done Just for Laughs. Oh, he was in I Think You Should Leave, which was, was great. He has a, an amazing album out just this year, Good news. I know he has like three other albums, but at least like critically acclaimed. He is so incredibly funny. And we had him on today because he's about to run his 10th marathon, 10 in a row to raise money for St. Jude. He's just a great guy. He's so nice and so funny. 10 marathons for St. Jude. I know. I know it's not a competition. Like being a good person is not supposed to be a competition, but I hate <laughs> seeing someone lapping me like that. He was so genuinely kind and nice and funny. It was great to get to sit down and talk with him about a really cool topic. A history of law and juries, which obviously has a deep background and a lot of weird stuff. It was just a blast. I loved it. And I so enjoyed having him on. So let's raise some money for St. Jude and let's get into it. Let's go. Matt Knudsen, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, pleasure does not begin to cover it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we've been talking a lot just before this started and then realized we should probably hit record because we've been talking about your incredible albums with good news, your time on I Think You Should Leave, you've done Conan and oh, Late Late Show. I mean, you've done everything. And you came on today to talk about the marathon too, which you're running for the 10th year in a row this March. Yeah, 10th year in a row, the LA Marathon for the kids of St. Jude. I did my first one. It was kind of like a bucket list thing. And we're just like, hey, I've never uh, marathon. Yeah, sure. May as well. But after I did my first one, I just was so connected to the city and the feeling because LA has this reputation of being like really self-centered and people are just like looking out for themselves. But then you get together and there's like 25,000 people all doing the same thing. And you literally run from Dodger Stadium to the Santa Monica Pier past a million people that you don't know <laughs> who are on the streets like, yeah. Yeah, you're doing, come on. You can get as many high fives as you can handle. There's <laughs> countless civic and religious and volunteer organizations along the way, holding up signs, giving snacks, just cheering for these people that they've never met or never will meet. And you're just like, wow, this is pretty, it's to say powerful sounds cheesy, but it's a very, very powerful feeling that I can't quite put into words. Oh, that's amazing. The cause is fantastic. I hate that there's a part of me that is motivated by that, try it, rather than just the fact that it's raising money for this fantastic cause in St. Jude. <laughs> but it sounds fantastic. St. Jude means so much to me. It's based in Memphis, which is where I'm from, and it means the world. However, like, you get a lot of praise was the thing that made, like, my brain light up when I was like, I should run a marathon. <laughs> this praise you speak of. Oh. Yeah, exactly. I can't quite explain the feeling. And I have to add this. I'm not one of those, like, elite five-minute mile guys. I'm like, oh, just, I jog and then I'll, I'll rest and I'll eat some more in slices and take some pictures. And uh, it's just, for me, I run at the pace of finish. So, you know, I can enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. Which feels like the way I, I, I appreciate it. If like, if you're going to finish in the top 100, sure, absolutely. <laughs> do your best. If you're not, maybe just walk. Maybe just enjoy your time there. Just finish. Finish. Finishing a marathon is something that I want to do it at some point, but it just sounds so monumental that like, I just haven't push myself. And I think this is the conversation that's going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Not a running episode, the episode that says that you get praise from strangers and religious figures. Honestly, you, you can do it. Anyone can do it. When you see the ages and sizes and shapes and of all these people and they're just, they're out there doing it. Anyone can do it. And if it helps, I didn't know this until I started running, you know, even these elite, like the, you know, the, the African Kenyan Ethiopian runners, you'll be somewhere around like eight, eight miles, 10 miles and they're just sitting on the curb eating orange slices and drinking Gatorade. They realize they're not going to win it. <laughs> and when they realize it's not their day and they're not, they don't have a chance of winning it. They don't finish it for the satisfaction. They just quit because 
it's their job. They're like, well, I'm going to do another one on Wednesday. So I'm going to save some of the steam for, you know, right. <laughs> got to have fresh legs. Yeah. Right. True. If you're not in the mix, they just, you know, and I don't think there's really a lot of shame in it. They're just, oh, that's not, not today. Not today. Which, I mean, makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. If you're about to go do another one and you know, you don't have a, a shot here. Like, I mean, I wish we could do that like mid set when you realize this is just not your night. And like, no, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> we'll try it again tomorrow. <laughs> Clearly this isn't working out for either of us. I got another one of these on Wednesdays. Yes. Can someone hand me an orange slice, please? Hilarious. Just wrap you in that like foil blanket. All right, Andrew, you, you tried. You tried your best. Get, get out of here. Very funny and very true. But I encourage anyone who's ever even thought about doing it because what's the worst that could happen? You like go out there and just like, oh, I'm getting a cramp. I, I can't finish. Or maybe you could finish and it'll be wonderful, but has a chance of happening because it's happening. I'm already not finishing a marathon. <laughs> that's it, It's not any worse than this. Well, that's great because we're, we're going to have uh, a link to donate here in the show notes as well as in a program post for this because you're looking to raise $10,000 this year, right? Yeah. You know, I, I figure I've never tried to raise this much money for anything in my entire life, but if it's going to be my last one, uh, I may as well just try and retire with a bang. Absolutely. We definitely want to help you get that goal. So we'll put this everywhere we can. And also to keep our audience engaged, if you guys enjoy this episode, go donate. That's the deal you're making by continuing to listen, not contractually binding, but we're going to go for it. So (laughs) Matt, what was the topic you picked for today? Today we were talking about jury duty and the justice system. Fantastic topic. Uh, (laughs) So you've done jury duty in multiple forms before, right? I have indeed. It's almost like a running joke here at the house because, you know, you're supposed to get it like once a year, right? So without fail, almost clockwork, I'll (laughs) always get the jury summons in the mail. And my wife hasn't done it once. She never gets it. She does. We live at the same address with all the same information, but every (laughs) time they're just like, all right, let's hit them up again. So I've done the thing where you call in and they don't select you. I've done the thing where you like go in and they interview you. I've served on a trial where I was actually in the jury box for several days. So I've run the gamut of potential jury scenarios. Wow. How did the, I imagine there's a limited amount you can discuss, but how did the trial go? Was it the outcome you wanted it to feel like it was a good experience? Well, I'm free to talk about it now because it's already been adjudicated and done and everything. But yeah, the guy was very, very guilty. And I think he just went to trial because it was his third strike. And he's just like, well, what the heck? Yeah, I'm going to get that tree in. I'm getting a trial. Let's roll the dice. Let's roll the dice. Maybe maybe I'm I'm innocent. Find one person that feels bad for me and I'll get off. Someone's going to 12 angry men this shit. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it's true. But basically what he was charged with was receiving stolen goods, which amounts to being a fence. So there was a, someone who was working as a luggage handler, LAX, and he stole this very expensive camera equipment. And then he gave it to this guy who sold it online, like an eBay account or, you know, and something like that. So I will say this, if you're thinking you're going to get away with anything in this era of technology <laughs> and texts and emails. It's just, I mean, the the guy even wrote a confession. The prosecutor included that in his case. He's like, here's him writing the thing that he, you know, so like I said, someone he was counting on the 12 angry men. What a great call. Yeah. Wow. All right. So that at least I have to make it easier. There's less of a moral dilemma when it's like, okay, we we know he did it. Like you were in the jury box, but you got to like skip out of it very quickly. I think we deliberated and I believe the term I used was hemmed and hawed right. for an hour <laughs> just to like, cause you didn't want to come back in five minutes. Like, yeah, yeah, he, he did it. Sure. We don't have to go into the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do this here. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So true. But one of the things that they did, and I can say, I think we, we stuck to it. You're not supposed to discuss it with anyone until you get to the room. And then you're like, all right, what, what do you think everybody? So there was a, a jury foreman and like everyone kind of went around and shared their thoughts. And there was a couple people trying to play devil's advocate, but you're like, Wait, someone legitimately did try to 12 angry men? <laughs> a little bit. I could tell that they didn't want to rush to judgment. But in his confession letter, what the guy wrote was, I didn't steal the things. I just sold them for a friend of mine. So I can't be guilty. I didn't steal. I just was selling. That's a different crime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the charge against him was receiving stolen goods, which was what he confessed to in, in his admission. So you say like, well, sure, you didn't steal 
steal it. So you're not going to be found guilty of stealing. You're fencing and you're part of the chain of custody of committing crimes. You're part of criminal infrastructure. (laughs) (laughs) A million percent. Yeah, a million percent. So I can't feel badly for delivering justice. And if I commit a crime and I go to trial and people are like, yeah, yeah, you you did the crime. What are you going to do? You're not going to, you know, you can't take it out on the jury. You're just a brick in the wall, so to speak. Right. And we've had plenty of episodes discussing the issues with the legal system as a whole. That's more normally focused on police, but the jury here are mostly filled with people that do not want to be there in the first place, uh, which is an incredible method for how you're going to base this is people that want to leave as quickly as possible. Doesn't feel like necessarily the best system for right. the truth. <laughs> right. Well, uh, if memory serves, I had like a stand up bit that went something to the effect of, you know, because this this really happened. Like the, the woman, like when they started laying out their case, you're like, I appreciate you guys being here. Most of the time when people get their jury summons, they just rip it up and throw it away. And so I'm here as juror number four thinking, wait a minute, we can do that? Yeah. Because I, I didn't realize here I am trying to follow the law. <laughs> I had no idea that was an option. This this is a good life hack for our audience members here. I have to say it's a very diverse jury pool because Los Angeles, this is five million people. So you get all the Bennington colors of the rainbow are represented in these five million people. So I think you get a pretty fair shake. I think that's a good point too, is that, that when you're in regions that have that diversity, there's a better chance of having actual true representation of what your group might be and an actual better chance of a jury of your peers rather than, you know, so many areas where it's just everyone is exactly the same except for the people accused of crimes because they're accused of crimes because they're not the same. (laughs) So LA obviously has a much better representation there. We also have some history that we should get into here. So to start this off, I started looking into law, legal history, and how this was formed and developed into juries. So the earliest example I could find was ancient Egypt. This was around 3000 BCE. We know it existed earlier because at this time they had systems well established. So this clearly had been in development for a while. But their legal system was based on the concept of ma'at, the concepts of truth, balance, order, harmony, law, morality, and justice. Ma'at being the goddess who personified the concepts. This was characterized by rhetorical speech, social equality, and impartiality. But what was interesting about this was because ma'at was considered a divine principle, it was also considered that one should be a parent to all. Like, you know what is right, you know what is wrong, and it's based on being a good neighbor and good person and finding balance within yourself. So those that broke these laws, punishment was extreme because this is breaking the laws of God and nature, which you see consistently as law develops. I really uh, enjoyed reading the research that you sent over and I was it was very informative and I was very impressed at how exhaustive the work you had put in. Oh, thank you. I, I got into this one. <laughs> it was great and really fun to read and filled with so many things I never knew. Counterpoint. I saw that this started in ancient Egypt and was like, damn it, Andrew, you did it again. You somehow found the <laughs> farthest possible way back. You could Look, I was not expecting to get to to Egypt, actually. I thought we were going to hit Babylon, but no, we hit Egypt first. And Egypt, again, it had the same policy that did continue through Babylon, which was guilty until proven innocent, the opposite of today, with the assumption that, well, if you weren't guilty, you probably wouldn't have been accused. You know, I just want to add, ironically enough, that was what I told the defense attorney when I was being interviewed to be on the trial, because part of it is they like interview you and they're like, what do you think about this particular case? I said very candidly, I was like, you you know what, to be honest, I think if you made it this far in the criminal justice system that you're going to be on trial where there's smoke, there's fire. I'm not going to lie. And the guy was like, all right, I'll accept him. And I was like, no. Really? You got yeah. acceptance for that? Yeah, that was the thing. I was hoping to like, I wasn't going to try and like say I couldn't make it because of work or I don't have a car. Right. Instead, you said the whole basis of the system was incorrect. And they were just like, that's the guy. What was your name again? Knudsen? All right, you're in. Oh, boy. Okay. Oh, cool. You are automatically going in this with the wrong ideas. He sounds perfect for our jury. Well, we're identifying some of the problems in the system pretty early, it seems. (laughs) But it was also even a while before we get to juries. Uh, At this point, judges were often priests who conferred with their God to reach a verdict rather than evidence testimony might be given, but it didn't matter. This is a holy ceremony. God is determining the verdict and it's being passed through with these priests. It was only during the Middle Kingdom, which is the 2040 to 1782 BCE era, that official 
judges were appointed, and again, judgment was divine. So because of this, false testimony was severely punished, from amputation to drowning, where the punishments are often inflicted. Basically, again, because the idea of they didn't want people accepting the idea that this could be wrong, because that means either God is wrong or the system is wrong. So the possibility of perjury had to be destroyed, which meant severe punishment. Well, I'm not going to lie. If I had to choose the order in which I'd like those things to happen, go ahead and drown me, then cut some stuff off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go nuts. You can amputate a lot of things. What's the amputation? Just so we can be fair. Just so we know. Just so we know. So amputation for this was often nose for perjury. Oh, wow. Not as expected. Because you were sticking your nose where it doesn't belong? I'm hoping that's the case. It seems unlikely since I doubt that was a saying yet. But sure, let's say yes. Maybe that's where the saying comes from. <laughs> that's Maybe that's the origin of the saying. But punishment actually was responsive to the crime like that. Murderers were beaten and fed to crocodiles or burned, other form of execution. They were killed in response. Rapists were castrated or had the penis amputated, which I think is the perfect response. That's pretty solid. Yeah, that feels incredibly, this is the only one, like ancient punishment was so harsh and every time I come to the punishment for rapists, I'm like, oh yeah, that's nailed it. That's bring that one back. Uh, (laughs) But thieves had their hands, feet or nose amputated. Another one that was strange was infidelity could be punished if it was brought to court. It could also just be dealt with husband and wife privately. Although if a neighbor brought it to court, it could be a prosecutor as well. And this was because it was considered a threat to the stable family, which was a threat to the foundation of Egypt. And even if you're found innocent of any crime, your name was kept on record. So public shaming had a big aspect as a deterrent here. Not that far off. We still publicly like post people's like their photos and everything. It's the only thing Florida is known for now. <laughs> is, is, yeah. No, but anywhere, anywhere, <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, that's public record. And there are whole magazines in certain areas of just like who was arrested this week. And it's their mugshot, their name and what they were arrested for. And there are websites that also do this and they make you pay money for it to be removed from their website. <laughs> It's a very shady process. Oh, my goodness. We should do an episode on that, actually, because it's a real thing. We should. That is really disturbing. What I'm hearing is the ancient Egyptians invented doxing. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really a good way to put it. This was very much where it was like, yeah, if you were accused, something was there and people are going to find out about it. But honestly, this actually had worked. This was generally considered a lawful kingdom, but it was with the decline of the empire during Ramses III reign from uh, 1186 to 1155 BCE where the pharaoh, Ramsey, was so much less concerned with welfare of his people than life at court that the belief and structure of Ma'at broke down. At this point, the pharaoh was supposed to be a representation of God, was supposed to be God's divine conduit here on earth, and he's not looking out for his people, so why are we believing in this? Begin with, one of the big disputes at this time that, that kind of was indication of the falling of the kingdom was the tomb workers' strike in 1159. They were paid in grain, beer, and necessary items, and the kingdom also had them live in an isolated valley outside of Thebes. So their payment was their only access to this. And when their wages didn't arrive, there was a strike. And this, it just continued to fall. There was tomb robbing at this time, false witnesses, law enforcement corruption, which actually for a period was considered fairly secure, became very corrupt because police could now accuse someone, have them sentenced, and then take what they wanted from their possessions when they were found guilty. Hmm. That's how they got OJ. Yeah. Am I right? <laughs> also, police can still do that, but you don't have to be found guilty. So. Yes. A massive, in fact, there was an article recently that said uh, more money last year was stolen by this law allowing police to seize items than by actual robberies of the public. And obviously, you have to remember the value of tombs there. You could hire people, if you're unable to do yourself, to leave items for your family every day. This was what had to be done at the time. So tomb robbing, there was a lot there to take, meaning that they also have enough money to just kind of bribe their way out when they were caught. I'll also say the grains and beer things. So like basically they were using the same payment method that I would use for a buddy to help me move my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> this was the system that Egypt was built on and it worked very well for quite a while. Yeah. Hey, what do you do next weekend, dude? I don't know. What's up? <laughs> hey, you like beer and grain? You know I did. <laughs> it's always such like a great offer because it sounds like, like, oh, you're asking what I'm going to do. Are we going to do something fun? I'm definitely free. Right. Oh, I'm actually moving. I need your help. Well, shit. Like, I think if you're asking for help moving, you have to say, I'm moving next weekend can you help right up front so that i have time to come up with a lot right. exactly <laughs> exactly let's just be honest you know <laughs> i feel like there should be a negotiation period too of like let's see the house and let's see how much you're offering for this help here because pizza and beer is the standard no matter what size place you're moving and i don't know how society let this happen <laughs> a joke from the the old act it was like 
guys, I'm at the age now where if I want pizza and beer, I'm just going to go ahead and buy my own pizza and beer. <laughs> but I can enjoy it without a herniated disc in my back. <laughs> I think a big turning point for me, too, was realizing, like, I can go do work during the same amount of time that will make me enough money to cover, like, 10 of these. <laughs> this this would be so much better for me. It's true. And if you just, like, spent, like, maybe, like, twice as much or three times as much as you did on the pizza and beer, you could get professionals who only <laughs> do that for a living, who, like, will bubble wrap it and really do a good job instead of, like, your buddies who are silently resenting you. Yeah, and ruining your furniture. <laughs> I, I actually got movers for my last move. It took all of maybe three hours for them to move me across town and set like things up and Amelia was like oh all of my friends are idiots. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't believe I let them just destroy valuable pieces of furniture because it was going to save me less than the value of the replacement furniture. <laughs> Recently, someone posted who lived just a few blocks south of me and they were selling a very large hutch. I did not realize how large, but it was great. It was an expensive piece and they said, rather they're just giving it away to someone that can take it. So I said, great, I'm going to hire one person because two people were too expensive, even though you do the math after you finish this and we're like, but it's not worth the dollar doctor bills that I'm going to pay now for the fact that my back no longer works. But I'm like, oh, no, I can probably point to stuff and just be like, oh, maybe I can lift a little bit here. No, this thing, it had a marble top that came off. The marble piece alone weighed 200 pounds. And like, you can't say I need you to just hang out for three hours while I hire someone else because I greatly overestimated all of my abilities as a human being. <laughs> like nothing I've done has prepared me for this. I don't know why I suddenly thought I'd be able to do this. Anyway, we, we did manage getting it into my place with little to no damage. It's great. Very happy to have it there. And well, I will never move something on my own again. It was the dumbest thing. I'm amazed that I didn't destroy it. What a beautiful lesson. Yeah. If but like back in the day, they try to encourage their friends to help them rob tombs. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing next weekend? You have to start with we're robbing a tomb. <laughs> then I can give me a chance to make up an excuse. You can't just spring that on people. Yeah. You can't spring that up. I got a back problem, but there's this chalice. It's like it's made of gold. We gotta get it, man. Well, and because of this, because this is, had all become so common at this time and everything had just kind of fallen apart. They had fully devolved to their old system of justice by the gods because Amun had almost eclipsed the authority of the throne at this point. Uh, so the punishment at this time would a priest would be hidden in or behind the statue of Amun and it would turn it to signify guilty or innocent. And this would be labeled as the divine prophecy of the god as to whether or not you're guilty or not. The ultimate shell game. Yeah. <laughs> I love the pageantry. <laughs> what was interesting too is like, you already are declaring that the priest speaks for the god. A lot of this probably wasn't necessary. Also, it's not like you made light statues back then. This had to be hard to do. Imagine a weak priest just like impotently <laughs> trying to push that statue to try to sentence you to death. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Mr. Burns of priests. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like just 30 minutes where you know which direction he's going, but you got to wait for a full rotation. And it's just like, just kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was interesting too around this time period was Egypt did have a, a lot of influence on the other forms. Uh, if we get into Sumer and Babylon, most people are familiar with the code of Hammurabi, but the code of ur actually predated it. This is the oldest surviving law code and was written around 2100, 2050 BCE. And it's incomplete. There are pieces missing, but enough was retained that they understood the concept was being conveyed. And King Urnamu encouraged his subjects to think of him as a father to his people, and laws were rules of the home. Punishment, other than capital offenses, were fines the same way a child might have a toy taken away. This was possibly published by his son, King Shulgi, after Urnamu's death. They're not quite sure of when it was released. But it was significant, and it was further developed for generations and served as a model for the Code of Hammurabi, which influenced laws of other civilizations as it just spread across the world. But King Hammurabi, which most people know as the eye for an eye, was ruled between uh, 1795-1750 BCE, and he had a set of 282 laws inscribed on this seven foot tall stele that was uh, just a large stone erected in town for everyone to see. And it was, wasn't the first law code, but it was the most clearly defined. Because what was different about this was between previous codes was Ur-Namu ruled over this homogenous population. And a lot of laws are developed out of culture and understanding of expectation with citizens acting under a standard of what was expected of them that they recognized. But Hammurabi at this point, he's in Babylon rather than Sumer and it has a much more diverse population at this point. His law code was a lot more precise 
precise to make sure it was understood by everyone who might not be as familiar with custom. So each code was written with what the expectation was, what the punishment was, which didn't include, you know, the eye for an eye, the same if you kill someone, the punishment is death as well. But there were also a lot of specifics in things like the cost of trading and what to do if something went wrong. If you hired someone to build a house and it failed, they need to pay for the replacements on their own. My personal favorite was that if you are gored by an ox on the street, <laughs> you can't do anything about that. That's totally <laughs> That's an act of God. Insurance doesn't cover that. <laughs> there was discussion of things like what was expected of farmers. And obviously this is someone's livestock. They're like, it's not his fault, dude. It's like, avoid the ox. Everyone knows this. <laughs> hey, this is uh, force majeure, my man. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's just out of our hands. We just started domesticating these animals, okay? <laughs> They're going to do some stuff. Well, but it did stick to the tradition of his engraved at the top was an image of Shamash, who is the god of justice, handing code, this particular code to Hammurabi himself. Again, indicating that this is God handing down these laws. You are then breaking divine law by defying them. Wow. And he's more of a father figure, so he's not mad. Yeah. I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointed. You kids. Well, and Hammurabi did influence the development of laws like in Greece, which obviously we know is is the founding of a lot of civilization, court included, was significant there. But they had no one word for law because there was distinction between divine law, human decree, and custom. And people argued their own case here. There weren't lawyers, but the wealthy might hire speechwriters to write their arguments for them. I can do that job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The, The jury system was used, but it could contain as many as five. 500 jurors or 1,001 to 1,501 in case of a tie for capital cases. Guilt, obviously, at this point, it was majority vote. So cases were timed by a water clock, which is essentially the same as an hourglass using water instead of sand. Water would run through a small hole. When this hour would be up, the argument had to be concluded. So because of this, cases would be concluded, kind of like, no matter what, within a day. And for private cases, often much less. Women could not testify and slave testimony was only admissible under torture. I only mention this because it is so relevant to the thought process throughout the Middle Ages that we'll see soon, where the claim was he would be too loyal to his master, and he needed his testimony improved by a stronger desire. So he would only tell the truth to make the pain stop, rather than the obvious logic of he would say anything to make the pain stop. So what did he tell you? He said he did it. Well, how'd you find (laughs) out? Did he just tell you? No, I had him on the rack. Yeah. Oh, okay. That is probably being honest. Can you imagine if you're one of those people who like was not loyal to your master? So you're like, he's a criminal. You should you should put him in jail. And they're like, okay, but now we have to waterboard you for 20 minutes. (laughs) I'm not loyal, I swear. (laughs) Some scholars have argued that this wasn't practiced. It was a rhetorical ploy. However, we know this was done so often in the future that whether or not it was done here kind of feels academic. When you go back and read the cases of what we have actual transcriptions of these arguments, what was very interesting was the court rhetoric was often treated as though it was a small city or a small town rather than a city with hundreds of thousands of people in it. They would be acting as though jurors would know the litigants or the supporters. And this is very much that I'm just a small town country lawyer, but (laughs) (laughs) you all know Jeb Clemens. He wouldn't have committed this crime. There's no way Jeb Clemens would do this. And it's like, dude, no, none of us have met him before. Nobody knows what you're talking about. It feels like uh, we're we're trying to figure out which culture invented the suspenders (laughs) so you can tuck your thumbs under. Well, you know, I'm no big city lawyer. <laughs> just one Grecian trying to figure out how to make that work with this toga. It's like, all right, this doesn't help, but God damn, it looks good. Just a nude man now standing here because <laughs> he fucked it up. One of the other was because there was no judge, jurors were very much aware of their collective power. So some records show speakers pleading with jurors not to heckle them until they finish their statement that they know that they're going to disagree with. In one case, I said, just by Zeus, please let me finish. And then wait for your just because like they couldn't get through. You have 500 people yelling at you that, that you're an idiot. Right. <laughs> because you're sick, so they disagree with. That's how I start all my sets, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pleading with the hecklers. Guys, listen, my parents are here. Guys, I know you're going to hate this. I know you're going to hate it, but just let me finish. All right. So what else is going on? Boom. Have you guys ever had any memorable like heckler experiences that went sideways on you? I don't think I've had any that were especially memorable. The only the one that was so strange was we all agreed the other comics that this was the worst show we had ever done because none of us had realized this was during Lollapalooza and it was a midnight show and so we were out and and the entire audience of twelve people they were drunk and I don't think any of them exactly knew why they were there and it was also 
this period where the vaccine had come out, we were starting to do shows again, and the audience had forgotten what they were supposed to do. <laughs> so I don't know if you had any of this, but just with a number of comics where they weren't heckling as much as they thought they were having a conversation with us. Like, did you you get some of this where they were just talking back? I had someone, I was like mid-joke, and someone said, I just got that to a joke I told like two jokes ago. <laughs> I was like, all right, we can discuss this after if you want. So, I mean, at a certain point, obviously, you just kind of abandon your set and start talking to them because what else are you going to do? What about you? What have you had? <laughs> Me? I, I haven't had anything so memorable that it really was like a big sparring match or a repartee back and forth. Mostly the <laughs> ones that hurt me most are when I'm doing like a self-deprecating joke and I just get a lot of agreeing from the audience. Uh, that's happened a few times. Yeah. Like I'll hear people like say, be like, he does look like that. And then I'll be like, well, it's not heckling, but I still didn't appreciate it, I guess. This guy's very self-actualized. Oh, no. I remember uh, one that like really stung. I was in San Francisco and I was like doing a set and I don't even think the guy was like part of the show or maybe he just happened to walk in, but he just started laughing loudly from the back. And he's like, <laughs> you became your dad. It's so specific. But I was a little like thrown. I was like, what do you say to that? Like, <laughs> I love the idea that he just took his shot to like, this might not be true, but if it is, it's going to really hurt. <laughs> yeah. Then there was another time this guy got kicked out because he was drunk and like heckling. And so somebody finally like, okay. And like showed in the door. And then like three minutes later, he came into the showroom with all the toilet paper from the bathroom. Oh like armfuls of rolls of toilet paper and started throwing at me on stage. I was like, oh my goodness. There's no business like show business. I thought his whole thing was just to take all the toilet paper in the place and leave. I just thought he was going to leave with it and just be like, enjoy the rest of your night now, assholes. And like walk out with it. He was trying to pull an Elaine. Yeah. I don't have a square to spare. Takes all the toilet paper. No, he came back and was throwing toilet paper at me and I was just like, oh my God. Wow. Incredible. Joke's on you. I needed this and I'm a comic so I couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, most of the shows, I have to say, people are pretty respectful and quiet that, you know. No, I've honestly almost always had a pretty good audience experience or, you know, they don't like me but they don't heckle at least. <laughs> right. They're just waiting for you to move on. Yeah. <laughs> it happens sometimes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. So imagine that heckling, but you know, if they don't like you, they might sentence you to death. So <laughs> that is essentially what Greece had going for them at the time. Skipping ahead a little bit, I wanted to get into some of the religious law because that greatly affected how it developed. Because in Catholicism, rules adopted by apostles at the Council of Jerusalem developed into a complex legal system, adopting elements of the Old Testament, Roman, Visigothic, Saxon, and Celtic legal traditions. As many as 36 collections of canon law are known to exist before 1150. And at this point, the way laws practiced is weird. It's kind of very much <laughs> dependent on where you are and what they're doing. That's the term, huh? Yeah. <laughs> My favorite one from this time was in 897 CE. Pope Stephen VI ordered the corpse of his predecessor, Pope Formosus, who died eight months earlier, removed from the vault in St. Peter's to be put on trial. So <laughs> did they put him on strings and work him like a puppet? I, <laughs> it would have been so much funny. Uh, also, remember, there's no embalming or anything. He's been dead for eight months now. Like he is not in good condition. But what had happened was Formosus had persuaded Arnulf of Corinthia to invade Italy and liberate it from Emperor Spoleto and did so in 896. And at this point, you're basically trading out popes like every couple of years. They are dying constantly. Italy is in a lot of turmoil as it was during this time period and for quite a while after. And there are a lot of factions being formed here. Who are they supporting Italy? Who they support in the church? And there are some pretty clear and strong dividing lines. So Formosus convinced Arnulf to do this and he immediately crowned Arnulf, the new emperor, a day later after he invaded Italy. And Spoleto had died suddenly, not killed, but he just died because everyone was dying 
dying at this time, pretty much always of a stroke too, but his relatives never forgot what had happened. And Formosus died of a stroke following year. Yeah, and not the good kind of stroke, <laughs> the, bad, the bad kind, right? Yeah. Well, and then in 897, Arnulf had a stroke and had to leave Rome. So Spoleto's relatives have sway again and insist that Stephen VI, Formosus' replacement, put him on trial for a list of alleged crimes. And Stephen didn't like Formosus anyway, so he was just totally forgame for this. So they removed the body dressed it in the papal robes, put a crown on him, propped him up on a throne, and called bishops and cardinals as witnesses who, like, might not have known what was going on, and they just had to come in there and see the Pope's old body sitting up there, many of whom had been appointed by him and were on his side, and then witnessed this trial, <laughs> and appoints an 18-year-old deacon as counsel for defense for Moses, just this kid who has to defend a dead Pope. And then Stephen just got up there and yelled and screamed insults at the court. This is like when Clint Eastwood was at the Republican National Convention. <laughs> and yelled at the chair, yeah. Just like, this guy's clearly working through some shit. It was insane. So Pope Steve. I love that it's Pope Steve. I know. <laughs> accused Moses of performing functions of a bishop after he had promised not to, of assuming the papacy and conspiring against a previous pope, and then said, well, he's not defending himself, so he's guilty. Oh, man. That's, that's like the original guy who passes out at a party and everyone draws dicks out his face yeah. well, he, he never said no yeah. he was he was on board that's crazy it was and now he has to be punished for this of course but he's dead so they cut off the three fingers that he used for blessing they removed the crown and people garments and he's thrown in the Tiber but he still has a following so monks sympathetic to him fetched the corpse from the river and rumors began circulating that his body was performing miracles along the banks of the Tiber okay so wait like were they saying that his corpse Corpse had magical properties like, oh, if you rub this corpse's hand on your eyes, you'll be able to see. Or were they saying that the corpse was like up walking around and like doing miracles that way? I actually don't know. I'm very curious about that. I think it is more of the former, but I couldn't find too much specific on that. Or were Jonathan Silverman and Andrew McCarthy propping him up along the banks <laughs> of the Tiber, weekend at Bernie style? <laughs> Well, but what was interesting but it was because he's now performing miracles and he still had a strong following. The bishops that he had appointed staged a coup and had Pope Steve thrown into a dungeon where he was strangled. <laughs> <laughs> the next pope immediately annulled the decree and Formosus was returned to the vault. And then another pope had him exhumed and tossed in the Tiber again. And then another had him returned to the tomb again. In 898, Pope John IX had to issue a decree prohibiting trials of the dead, and it still didn't stop it. Stop digging up the corpses. People are getting sick. <laughs> On the bright side, I was just going to add, like, at least he got it in the order that he wanted, like, die and then start cutting things off, you know? So he wasn't even around to feel it. Right. Of the way it had to happen, that was clearly the best option to go. But what was interesting about this and significant in the development of law was that it was indicative of the thought process that religion is inherent throughout all of this and that death is not the end here. So what you are accused of here could play into your afterlife as well. That said, you see, I don't feel like they're really buying into that if they're saying it, but the body has to be here. Habeas <laughs> <laughs> <Hapius> corpus. Yeah. <laughs> so for a while, again, this, a lot of this is being performed all over. Their own sets of rules are being come up with. And this is in the Ius Antiquium period, which is the foundation of the church to mid 12th century. Canons were decreed by bishops bishops and ecumenical councils. The Bishop of Rome would supplement them in response to doubts or problems. And basically what, whatever Rome said went. That was the final ruling. So no book had tried to summarize or systematize the entire body of canon law until the Camaldolese monk Gratian in the 11th century with the Decretum Gratiani, originally called the Concordance of Discordant Canons. He compiled all of these. This was the first time there could be a system of legal interpretations of canon principles. Because of this, he's considered the father of much of modern law. But during this time period, we also see the emergence of jury trials again in England uh, the exact origin is unknown if it was indigenous or brought over by Norman invaders in 1066. But here we see the big difference in jurors then from today. Jurors were neighborhood witnesses. They were judged based on what they knew themselves. The idea was the jury should be the most informed people, not the least informed. Here, obviously, often they'll ask what you heard about the 
is so far. And if it's too much, you'll be dismissed. Obviously, because what you've been heard is likely going to be biased, but still. And I just might add that that was actually the first and only time $15 a day seemed like pretty decent money. Really? <laughs> That's what they pay you now for jury duty. Oh, yeah. No, don't worry. You get 15 but It's on us. However, you might get a very thin turkey sandwich as well. So overall, really good deal. <laughs> Fingers crossed. They should use pizza and beer. But what happened after this was as the breakdown of medieval society, because of the growth of cities, changed the role of jury, they were now using evidence of facts of the case presented in court. But religious influence was significant in deciding one's fate. Because even before this, trials by oath were common, where a person had to round up people willing to swear that they were innocent, called compurgators. And the amount of people depended on the crime. One more famous example was 899 CE. Queen Uta of Germany was accused of adultery, and she won an acquittal when 82 knights confirmed her chastity. <laughs> That's, how would any of them, you know what, I'm just going to let that one lay. <laughs> I get how they could know she didn't keep chaste. This one was a lot harder to prove, but the number really varied. In Dark Ages Whale, a person accused of poisoning had to find 600 compurgators to vouch for them. But this was in a significant period of development of law that coincided with religion, because the reason this was considered reasonable was many believed God would strike dead anyone who swore falsely. So if you could get this many people to vouch for you, it had to be true. Yeah. And I guess the first step would be to explain to someone what a compugator is. Right. <laughs> Oi, you'd be my compugator. What's this in? <laughs> they had a long road to start with, Ramir. They basically just introduced trials and then jury. But the thing is, this kept evolving too, because at first they have this and then people are like, okay, but there's a chance they could lie. So it led to trial by ordeal, where one would have to overcome a challenge, which was typically painful and capable of causing injury. This could be retrieving a stone from boiling water or walking over hot irons. The saw method. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the original double day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you can complete the American Ninja Warrior course, <laughs> you can do as many murders as you want. Well, and they really get into that level pretty soon because right now, with this, sorry, with this defendant is found innocent if the injury is sufficiently healed within a specified time, three days was typical, and guilty if it festered. And this is old times, so like they always festered. Oh, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like nobody knew about germs. <laughs> like if you had a burn, you were going to die. That was pretty much it. So when I started reading into this, because obviously we're mostly familiar with the, always oh, it's called this, it was the ordeal of the cold water, which was where a bound suspect was thrown into a body of water to see if they sank or if they would float. And we're familiar with this from witches, but most of the time it's presented as no matter what, you're screwed. They were just looking for a way to kill you. That's what it seems like. But the faith was so extreme here. They believed water would repel sin. Anyone who sank persuasively enough was acquitted and possibly retrieved in time to survive. But more importantly, they believed God would intervene for the innocent. It didn't matter how extreme it was. It doesn't matter if it was, we're going to throw you off the cliff. If you're innocent, God will save you. So because of this, they could kind of set up anything they wanted here because the public would be convinced that ultimately it's in God's hands no matter what we do. She turned me into a newt. <laughs> I got better though. I also wonder like how many people like were thrown into the dead sea. He's not sinking at all. He's guilty. That is, I had God. So I, I, I had not it at all, but that is really funny. Just like tying a bunch of weight to him. No, wait, I can do it. I swear I can get it done. I can do it. I swear. I wasn't even in town when this happened. Yeah, well, <laughs> tell it to the Dead Sea. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like anything that they could throw at me where I'd be like, okay, well, that's not too bad. Like, I, I wish I could like say my own things. Like if I can make five out of 20 free throws, like, obviously God is cool with me committing crimes. When obviously being Catholic, this was your game because the Catholic Church really took to Charles of the Ideal because they could use it to get people to prove they were a true Catholic. Obviously, we see confessions to the Spanish Inquisition as well. They had used torture as a standard to get information and to get convertants. They also realized priests could be paid to supervise the ordeals and suddenly the ordeals became abundant. This is how we're solving everything now. But what was interesting was there was a surprisingly high exoneration rate. Priests had a lot of latitude to make judgments, even if the ordeal itself wasn't manipulated. So first of all, if you had to walk over hot irons, which was a common enough thing, irons might not be heated as much. Also, they might have been heated and you got burned and they said, well, yeah, but this isn't as bad a burn as it should have been. So there was a lot of exoneration, quite possibly because there were also a lot of bribes. Uh, what a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also too, I mean, and not to be too sacrilegious, but like even just the basis of what religion is, is like a, a big ask for people. Right. Like, all right here's, there's this giant spirit in the sky that's watching you all the time time and it will tell you when you're good or bad. It's like even to get people to sign on to that is pretty incredible. Right. Honestly, I think that's it too. If you 
you got them to sign on, the idea of, okay, cool, now he makes all the rules is a lot easier space to get to. It's like you're already in this far. How, how unreasonable is it that suddenly this person can walk across hot irons? That feels totally reasonable. I just think that, you know, it's all based on faith except for this proof. This is proof, right. though. <laughs> like, you have to believe what you can't see, but now we're going to make you show us that God is real. And not only that, but he loves you. Right. <laughs> it's just like, that's a lot. Really? Because he sounds pretty pissed off. <laughs> Especially Old Testament God. Oh, yeah. Well, and because of this, too, it, it did keep evolving, and it got to a form where it was, okay, you have to prove it yourself, which was the trial by combat. This is still God is deciding, but obviously your skill has a lot of impact here. So as started reading up on The Last Duel, the actual Last Duel, and I hadn't realized that the movie was actually about this. I haven't seen that yet, but this was, I think, 1382, might have been 1385, in France, and at this point, early 1300s, this had mostly died out. We're like, okay, clearly the system isn't working, but it's not what I wanted to get into here, because a trial by combat kind of deserves its own thing, and it has to do a lot with knighthood and, and the upper class that we can discuss in another episode, but it's, it's well worth looking into, because what was unique about it was, in other circumstances, you were alone in your accusation, and you had to prove yourself here there were two parties and one of them was right and one of them was a liar and the consequences from this were extreme and, and the last two ones discussed is a woman has accused another man of rape and her husband is fighting this person and if her husband loses not only was he now dead but that meant God wasn't on their side which meant she was a liar so she's going to be punished as well so the extremeness of these situations and all those that are involved in trial by combat it's something that we have a lot of fantasy over of being very chivalrous and this is my knight stepping in to defend me. But also this is a system where it's like, guys, we have to be able to do better than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like quite a domino effect. Right. It, oh, it absolutely was. But around this time too, we start getting a different system where 12th century Henry II set up a system of resolving land disputes using juries, a set of 12 men who were charged with investigating the case themselves. They would hear cases, but they'd also look into it. And again, proximity might have something to do with it to either the people or the case itself or the location. And in 1215, the church banned participation of clergy in trial by ordeal and England, and without the legitimacy of religion, it just faded. And the trial by jury became a right in the Magna Carta. And again, jurors were chosen because they either knew the parties and the facts or had the duty to discover them themselves. And that was just expected that you would do so. It was until the 17th century that jurors were free to investigate cases on their own. But this was also during this time that kings began to extend their control over the jury and kingdom. Things like the Star Chamber came into existence, a court at the Royal Palace from the 15th to mid 17th century. And this originally formed to ensure fair enforcement of laws against socially and politically powerful people. Ordinary courts might be hesitant to convict. And it just went the complete other way because they had absolute control and their rule was law and what they decided went and let them fine, imprison, and inflict corporal punishment without oversight and let them do so on offenses not normally reachable by common law. If the prince was present, his voice was the only one that mattered and no lower courts would go against them. Jurors at lower courts would be punished simply for finding a verdict opposite the Star Chamber. So the expansion of the British Empire and French Revolution led to the spread of the jury trial across the continent and then it fell. Juries were established in France, then through Napoleon and Rhineland and Belgium, then in most of the remaining German states, Austria, Hungary, Russia, Italy, Switzerland, Holland, Luxembourg. The last two abolished it immediately after Napoleon's defeat, and the others, it was only in place for major crime. Mid-1800s, the crimes jury trials oversaw began to be limited. Prussia removed treason, Nassau removed political crimes. Lead up to World War II saw significant limitations. Germany abandoned the jury in 1924. Soviet bloc and fascist states abolished it. France never restored it after the Germans abolished it during occupation. Austria only reintroduced it in a weakened form. And juries have been incorporated into the legal system of many civil law countries for criminal cases, but only the U.S makes routine use of juries in a variety of non-criminal cases. And despite jury trials only occurring in less than 5% of filed civil actions in the U.S., over 90% of jury trials in the world still occur in the United States. This is a unique practice. This is one that I think most Americans assume is how cases are handled all over the world. And it absolutely isn't. This is what we do here. <laughs> and that's kind of it. <laughs> I had no idea. That's very interesting. It is interesting that like we use the same system for sentencing people to death as movie studios use for finding out if people will like the ending of Superman <laughs> Pop. You know, like, let's get 12 people from the street yeah. and let them, like, lay it out in front of them and see what they think, and we're going to go based purely off that. What if the people are working during the day? Well, in that case, they can't join us. But whoever can't make it. This was it. This is pretty much a history of law and jury. So, Matt, I mean, there's a lot of bad here, but how about for you, where did it go wrong? You 
you know what? I have to say where it went wrong is when you let these people who had a real conflict of interest still call the shots as if they were impartial. When you have something really to gain and you're still sitting on the throne saying, well, let's hear both sides. It's right. like, don't bother <laughs> hearing both sides. If we're still going to do your autocratic dictator family wins, no matter what this smoke and mirrors your justice system, you know, if it's not impartial, I don't think it's anything resembling justice. I think that's completely true, especially because it's presented as if it's still the same formation that America has touted itself for, for being impartial and equal, despite the fact that it's never really been that. And because of that, I think the same reason as before saying God will decide the truth works, people saying the justice system works, works on the public. They just refuse to accept that this is a deeply flawed system where like, we have proof that can't be disputed about the exact same crimes, harsher sentencing for people of color, obviously far more arrests to, to begin with, that those less privileged for any number of reasons are going to be tried more and convicted more. And it's still presented as this paragon of a law system when, again, like one of the only things America actually leads the world in is percentage of incarcerated people. <laughs> like we are way too high on that because we have a system that's really been developed to just be like, no, if you did something wrong or we think you did something wrong, it's going to end up in jail and there's no real escape from that. I, I know in one of the Scandinavian countries, obviously a lot of Scandinavian countries are far ahead of us in a lot of things, but one of the things I really liked that they did was they said there's no punishment for attempting to escape prison. That's human nature to want to be out. And it's like, oh yeah, I get that. Like if we catch you, we're going to put you back in. You're not free now. <laughs> but an understanding of you're still people and you're going to behave as people do, whereas America, I think, goes in the other direction and be like, no, now you're just criminals and that's the label that stays with you. So true. It's so true. You're like a convict. I'm trying to remember the name. It was actually, it was really good. It's Sandra Bullock's new movie on Netflix where she's a convict. She gets out of jail. She's trying to get a job at something and everyone, even her like parole officer, they're like, you're a convict. You'll always be a convict. That's only what people know you as. You served your time. The Unforgivable. Yeah. It's on Netflix. We just watched it the other night. She's really, really good. And she's beautiful, but not afraid to look not beautiful. If that makes sense. I haven't seen it yet. I saw it on. I thought this looks like it'll be really good. And I'm not sure I'm emotionally prepared to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, after this episode we did, yeah, you got to like, okay, let's see how the system works. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not ruining it to say there was a twist I wasn't expecting, but we liked it. Oh, good. It's very encouraging. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think that there's been mostly bad here, but there were periods where, where there was really a structure of like, look, what we're trying to find is the truth. And now it's very much structured for if you have the most money, you're good to go. And that's it. I mean, we have a system and a society in general where, oh, this is a democratic method of knowing whether or not someone should go to prison because it's a jury of their peers. And yet we've also been told our whole lives are just, oh, jury duty. Right. <laughs> uh, whatever you can do, get out of jury duty. So it's made up of a lot of people who couldn't figure out how to get out of it. <laughs> don't want to be there and want to go home. As you stated earlier, are being paid $15 a day. So that's another reason they're probably wanting to wrap things up as quickly as possible. For certain crimes, they probably might not even have the education necessary to really understand the case. So the lawyer's job not only becomes, did this person commit this crime? It is, okay, here is an elementary level of what this crime is and how it can be performed that might fly completely over their heads. And then we were talking about 12 angry men earlier. You always have the possibility of someone in that jury room just really just ignoring everything the judge told them and just going with their gut feeling and then what do you do then just one guy who's just like hey i just i just don't like it i don't know i didn't trust it think about how many conspiracy theorists we have today you could have any of those people on a jury and what are you going to do like the QAnon guy who thinks that maybe this is a secret lizard person right. is going to have just as much power on that jury as you know a lawyer who's just doing their civic duty and just got called for jury duty that day well i think that's a great point and also like 12 angry men was a beautiful film but imagine that same guy but he's terrible at arguing <laughs> because that's mostly who you're dealing with with the one person who refused to accept what everyone else agrees on is this guy who just doesn't know what he's talking about and is just going to keep yelling at you and ultimately there's so much study on this now from jury selection and understanding of human nature and that you don't have to control everyone in the jury room you have to control the key people because everyone else is going to follow these people and the level of science put into it is like 
that this is not a conversation between two people with the same information anymore, making this the same play. And even in the beginning, and you know what you see the judges do to people that are coming in with a lot of money, where it's like, okay, cool, just go stay at home for a while. Like this isn't offered to anybody else, but why are they going to argue with a lawyer? Right, because you can have the million dollar bail. You can wait trial at home. Yeah, I remember there was an old episode of Happy Days and they did like a send up of the 12 angry men. And if memory serves, Tom Bosley was the foreman and he was counting (laughs) up the votes from the jury. He's like, all right, we have 11 guilties and one not guilty Amundo. And it was the Fonz. (laughs) Not guilty Amundo. And he, Fonz was the one who put the case together and explained how the guy was probably innocent and it was, uh, you know. And then he jet skied over a shark. (laughs) (laughs) What was interesting about how other countries deal with this because of all of these issues is for where we're a common law country, many are civil law countries, is it might have a jury of a sort, but of multiple judges, people who are familiar with the law. And this isn't a spectacle. It doesn't need to be argued in front of a courtroom because everyone involved knows the law, what they're trying to determine. And also they're not using precedent for some other case that happens to mean this is a loophole. Everyone involved is supposed to have an understanding of the law. is supposed to be gathering as much fact as they can and then putting it into play. And the rules make it clear here. If he did this, which we can determine from these things, then this is the punishment. And obviously that's not what's going to work because people lie and we can't always get all the information, but it's a much more reasonable system. We have people who are already supposedly experts on the subject pursuing this to find a truth, not to win. I thought it was really interesting that like what you were talking about earlier, the guy like had this seven foot tall tablet. He's like, hey, you do this. Here's the crime. Here's the punishment. And it was very laid out and it was very cut and dry. And it wasn't like if you do this and you're from a powerful family, you do 18 months. Right. <laughs> Five years. That's it. <laughs> it was interesting because the Code of Hammurabi was considered looking back on it to be especially brutal in a lot of ways, but also because it was so clear, it was a point in history where it could be well defined and where they could just kind of see like, look, we know what was done here. We There doesn't have to be debate on this because what has happened is understood. And even if it was too harsh a punishment, the fact that everyone was aware of it and everyone was equal in it made it a system that they I mean, there's a reason why it influenced basically law spreading out through the entire world after that. It was like, oh, cool. Everyone knows what's wrong. Everyone knows what's what's allowed, what isn't. And they just follow those rules, guys. That's right. And Andrew, I got to say, you are so, so super smart. <laughs> Not only to have this, I mean, right, Wentz, am I wrong? No, he truly is. The deep level of research and the specific pronunciations and coming out with it so quickly and so astutely, my hat's off to you sincerely. Thank you so much. I absolutely love doing this show. It's, it's so great to have a chance to dig into these really fun topics and get to talk about them with people who can see that it's horrifying, but incredibly funny. And like, that's the way you want to get at this. Every episode I do the research on, I get nervous because I have to live up to Andrew's version <laughs> of research. <laughs> Your research is like, so what's up with the calendar? What's <laughs> June. Uh... Am I right? I'm over here just like LeBron James graduated high school. And, like I'm doing a book report. Okay, LeBron and James episode was a really fun one. That was a good episode. It was a really fun one. Webster defines. Okay. Right. Well, speaking of all of this, that does bring us to our next section in their defense, where we have to defend what do we want? The jury system here? That feels like a terrible thing to have to defend. How about any part of this that you want? Matt, as our guest, you get first dibs if you want it. Well, I will say in our defense, regardless of the flaws in the system, if I was ever accused of a crime, I wouldn't want anything besides the American justice system to say, hey, where's that Bible? Let me put my (laughs) hand on it. Here's what happened. This is my side of the story. I'm not going to be God said you did it. Why? You're speaking for God? Give me a break. You at least get to sit in the stand and you get to tell your side of the story and to defend your own position, I wouldn't want it any other way. Oh, I think that's very reasonable. The fact that you do have an opportunity to get up there and speak on your own behalf is one of the benefits here. When, what do you think? So I looked it up and the normal trial lasts between one and two and a half days. That is the normal length for a trial. And if you know that you're very guilty, say you're the person that was on the chance to, to do that trial for, say you're someone like that, you, you know that this probably isn't going to work out. And instead of taking a deal because he couldn't because it was a third strike. He went to a jury trial and he had to sit for one to two and a half days or so waiting to just be told, hey, you're screwed. 
Wouldn't you prefer five seconds of just running across some coals and being done with it? <laughs> like the chance that like maybe you can get away with it if you just run lightly enough across these coals. Like you could get the whole thing over and done with and be like, my feet aren't that burnt. And they're going to be like, son of a bitch, they're not that burnt. You can go home. Like that sounds like the way to go in, in some cases. And I'm going to say maybe not the worst system if you already have pretty callous feet. <laughs> <laughs> touche, touche. Thank you. I think that is a very good point. For me personally, my thought process is this. I cannot think of anything that gets me to take a break and stop working. It's just not there. Being court mandated to go sit and listen to some other guy talk about why he did or didn't do a crime might be the only two-day break I get. <laughs> it is the only chance I might have to shut my break. They give you snacks. And like, I buy the, the crappy snacks because I know if I have the good snacks, I'm going to eat them all. That's right. It is the oversight that I need to have like a two-day break, a couple snacks I'm going to enjoy, and then, you know, the eternal weight of knowing I determines a man's guilt when I do not have all the information I possibly could as I'm not God. It's not necessarily an equal trade-off. I feel like the tormented soul that comes with that may be not worth like the good gummy bears, <laughs> but I'm going to appreciate the hell out of those gummy bears knowing what I did for them. And that's my defense of the jury system. And I just want to add this. I guess this is kind of dating the episode a little bit, but I think the the most casual sentence for murder in this country was recently handed down and it was 90 days and that was for Robert Durst. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you going to do? Dress his corpse up in robes and just leave it sitting out there for everyone? Cut off three fingers? These are the fingers. Durst is performing miracles down by the Hudson right now, actually. <laughs> Hilarious. I remember like seeing the headlines when he was convicted. He's just like, Life in prison. I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> a.k.a. 17 days. <laughs> he made it to 2022. <laughs> Well, I can't imagine we could do better than that. Matt Knudsen, thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. And I uh, can't wait to see what 22 has in store for us all. Absolutely. Uh, us too. And we're going to, again, have a link to donate down to your run in the marathon, down in the show notes, down on the promo for this. Guys, if you can give money, if you enjoy this, please absolutely do. It's for St. Jude's, a fantastic cause. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this as well. We have a Patreon down in the show notes. I'll just keep this show going. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Give us five stars. Help us out there. We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.